Obviously, we are a mental health podcast called No Really, I'm Fine. And we start off by asking all our guests, are you really fine today, Denise? So are you really fine? Well, I am fine today, which I'm very pleased to say, um, because um, I, you know, my, my depression tends to be endogenous a lot of the time. So sometimes if I've had a bit of an overwhelming time and, and, and actually just even if it's a positive overwhelming time with like, you know, my book coming out and, and it doing very well, although that's a wonderful thing, sometimes I get overwhelmed by the fear of, it, of my depression coming. So I wake up in the morning and I think, how do I feel? And I kind of do that subconsciously every day. So today I feel fine. So I'm thrilled because I don't strive for happiness. I strive for normalcy and just being normal is fine for me. So, yeah, that's good. Um, we'll, we'll come on to your book in a minute. I've read it and I love it, by the way, but we'll come on to that in a minute. I just I wanted to ask how you've been during lockdown and what are sort of the things that you've been up to? I've been well mentally. I mean, I've been very sad, you know, a lot of the time. And I've shed, had days where I've done nothing but cry and sometimes taken to my bed, but not with clinical depression, just with overwhelming sadness, Gemma, like we all have had it, at what's happened, you know, and and, and, and fear like anybody else of our new normal and worried about, I've been very lucky that I've been able to work in lockdown. And I've had a husband, I have a husband who's an artist and he's been, obviously it's hugely affected his, his work in some ways, but he's moved everything online. And, you know, we're both very lucky that we've been able to maintain an income, but so many of my friends haven't. And, and so many of my friends in the theatre have no idea when they can work again. And it's terrifying for my industry for many industries but for my industry we don't know when we can work and my son is an actor and my my other son is a musician and you know we rely on audiences and crowds for for our job so that's overwhelmed me but um as regards the early lockdown i really quite enjoyed it if i'm honest i found a lot of solace in lockdown in just having to stay home. Those early days when we were still sort of trusting the government, even though I didn't vote for this government, but I was still trusting them to make the right decisions. And we all knew that we had to stay in and we could only go out to the shops. And Louis was down at at Matthews, so he was with his brother. So I knew that they were safe. I knew they weren't driving anywhere. I knew they weren't getting on an aeroplane. So I felt cushioned by this, this event had happened that my kids were both safe and Lincoln and I just love spending time together so Lincoln's been seriously trying to self-isolate from the minute I've met him (laughs) I mean he's he's a real lover of social distance so he's fine (laughs) and uh, he has a very solitary career as well as regards the painting side of it so I think Lincoln could quite happily be locked down for good Mm. Um, and I think there was something so peaceful about these long sunny days where all we did was shop and eat and I would I would cook and I don't normally have time to to prepare a meal or I or I feel as if I don't. And um and 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 we just we just enjoyed each other's company and we weren't rushing up and down to London and you know it was just really nice. And I think that I'll always look back on those days of lockdown with a real fondness. And I just get sad that we were looking at these pictures of how the the, the environment was benefiting from this lockdown and how our streets were clean and our beaches were clean. And then you look at the situation yesterday on the beaches and taking the social distancing aside, but it's just the disgusting mess on the beaches already. And I just wish that we could have taken something from that and made it last a little bit longer. So, you know, it's um, there's a lot of sadness, but I do see the world is trying to um, to start up again. 
And uh, and, I, and I, I, I just hope that as many people as possible can cling on to their jobs. Mm, definitely. And, and you've seen your dad now, haven't you, amid social distancing? I have distancing? seen my dad. <laughs> I've seen my dad. Oh my God, I tell you what, I'm not sad to see the end of the blooming three times a week family quizzes. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. I'm sick of seeing my dad's eyebrow, <laughs> my mother-in-law's nose, my dad's ear. You know, and then and then I'm trying to get them all on WhatsApp and my dad's ringing me on FaceTime and I'm going, it's not on FaceTime, dad. Just wait till I call you on WhatsApp. <laughs> you know, it's one of those. And it's so stressful. So now we've managed to get it down to once a week. Thank goodness. Yeah. You can get a bit bored, can't you? Yeah, you can. You can. You can. But it's 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 been nice. And I think it's been really hard for the older generation. Um you know, I mean, I really feel it has. And my dad's been amazing. My mum-in-law has been amazing because she's been with my brother-in-law who was on the vulnerable list. He's fine, but, you know, they've been locked down together. And um, and and my, my dad has just been fantastic. You know, he's, he's maintained a sense of humour. I mean, lockdown for dad won't be over till he can go to the pub and flirt with women probably. So, you know, we've got to wait for that to happen again before he'll have a proper smile on his face. <laughs> So moving on to to the biggie then the book um I read it within two days um the Me un- too. yeah the unwelcome visitor and I love the book which is perhaps not the right word to say when you struggle no it I'm I'm glad that you did I'm glad that you did I found I could identify with so many aspects of it and I laughed I understood but most importantly as well because I have a mental illness I I suffer with chronic anxiety and and depression although not as severe as if you had Denise but I found I could identify with a lot of it so for our listeners who are yet to read the book do you mind briefly telling us what it's about and and why you decided to do it at this moment absolutely and and by you saying you enjoy it is exactly the right response because as you said there is humor in there Gemma and the book is about depression but not depressing and if I was in an elevator and had to make an elevator pitch to someone I would say The people who have depression and anxiety will understand and those who don't will hopefully learn how to. And that is what I intend for this. And I have been living with mental illness and depression in the main um, for 31 years since I had Matthew, my eldest son. Before I had Matthew, the word depressed to me meant the weather was horrible or, or I was depressed about the state of circumstance, you know, just like, oh, my God, I've got to do this. or oh, I feel really depressed. Oh, my God, I can't be bored. I feel really depressed. You know, I'd never, ever had a day of psychiatric illness. Anyway, I had Matty and I was a typical blooming woman in pregnancy. My hair was great. My skin was great. I had I had a relationship with my husband that I was very happy in at that time. Everything was fine in, in, in Dandy. We were having a much wanted child. So I was completely blindsided by the fact that I was plunged into this, I don't mind saying, suicidal depression within five days of having him. And I was on the verge, apparently, of a corporal psychosis, which is the step on from severe depression. But I wasn't quite in the psychosis, so I can remember most of what was happening. And it was the most frightening time. Had I not had the family that I have, I don't know how if I would have got through it and I don't mean that to sound dramatic but it's the truth because 30 years ago we didn't know the word podcast we didn't know the word social media there was there was no help out there for someone with depression as far as I was concerned and I was a lone voice screaming out for help about it and I had a doctor who said well I just didn't have I was sitting in a catatonic state in her surgery And she said to me, 
she leant forward and said, well, I just didn't, I've got five children, dear. I just didn't have time to get depressed, is what she said to me. Can you imagine? I was fuming when I read that. (laughs) Well, that's what she said. And unfortunately, that was an example of what I was up against. I was sent to see psychiatrists who all had, they were all male psychiatrists who had a look in their eyes as if, oh, it's a, you know, you've had a baby, so this is to be expected. Bearing in mind, I tried to throw myself out of a car to stop the pain. I wasn't trying to end it. I was trying to stop the pain. And it wasn't a fast moving car. It was like I wanted something. I wanted some physical illness to have them take me into hospital and make me better. I can only imagine that's what was going through my head. And um, and the, this psychiatrist was trying desperately to try and make this be about some childhood trauma. And that was a common denominator in about four psychiatrists I saw desperately saying to me, did your dad spend too much time with you? Did you, you know, and it was like, stop trying I can understand people who get that false memory syndrome because honestly, it was like, no, my childhood, I had a happy childhood. This has got nothing to do with that. And of course it hadn't. Um, and it was 20 years before I ever had anyone take the hormonal side of it or the origin side of it um, seriously. 20 years of me battling to get that. So when when after about a year, I, I was able to see that, you know, I was able to see the wood for the trees or whatever the expression is. I did an article about postnatal depression for my local paper in Newcastle, The Chronicle. And um, it got picked up by a magazine. And suddenly I got people ringing me about talking about postnatal depression, like I was the only person that had ever talked about it. And my manager, my manager, my agent at the time was he was about 110 I remember him saying to me um oh darling you can't talk about this people I think you're mad that you won't be able to work nobody will employ you nobody will employ you you must you must be quiet I remember thinking there is no way that I am going to be silenced talking about this condition which has completely and utterly changed my life so I started to speak out about it and I was the only person talking out about it. And psycho- I, would, I would go on these shows who you won't be old enough to remember, but, you know, other people old enough will. Um, shows like the Robert Kilroy Silk Show and The Time and the Place, which were kind of morning debate type of shows. And I would go on there and there would be medical people on there who would say, well, of course, if I'd seen you when you were pregnant, I would have been able to tell. And I'd say you couldn't have. You, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who tries to tell the medical profession their job, but there are some areas where unless you have experienced it, you know, you know, I've made, it's been my life's work for the last 31 years to, as a lay person, know as much about this illness as I possibly can from, from lived experience. And so it was very hard for me, but I had a mom who said to me every single day, you will get better. And what this book says, it's called The Unwelcome Visitor, which is how I refer to my illness, to my depression. And the subtitle is Depression and How I Survive It. And it's not depression and how to survive it because I'm not a medic. I can't tell people who to, how to survive, but I can tell people how I survive. And if they gain solace from that, then that's what I've set out for this book to do. And was it easier in a way to write about it when you were describing your illness as a visitor? Or have you? is that something that you've always described it as? I've always described it as a visitor. I've always described it either, either as an uninvited guest or an unwelcome visitor. And formally, I described it as my thing. And in fact, to this day, if my family ring me and they go, are you, oh, I've, Lincoln says you're not well. And I go, no, I've got my thing. 
and they just know then to check up on me but to leave me alone and that the unwelcome visitor will always leave and I've always I don't know why I've always seen it as a separate entity but I have I've been going on stage before and I've felt the old warning signs of, of it coming on you know with a tingling in my palms and a metallic taste in my mouth and I've stood at the side of the stage and I can't swear on your podcast and I won't but um you can if you want going, no but don't <laughs> you don't you bleeping well come you know really I don't know I my worst language is directed at my thing and I said don't you fucking well come because I've got to well go on this stage with you or without you you're ruining my fucking life you know and it's like and I've had to walk on stage sometimes with my thing with me, you know, and that's fucking terrifying. Um, you know, because you've been there and you've had it. Mm. Um, and and it's basically, uh, you know, what what happened to spawn this book is that last September, which was touch wood, my last serious episode of depression, which is nine months ago, which is a long time for me. So I have been sort of waking up every morning thinking, oh, is he here? Is he here? And so... Um, I, 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 I was driving to the Northeast with my family, for, with friends to see my sister in the Northeast for a really joyous weekend in the car with my friend Lisa. Her children, Matty's grand, God kids, were singing in the back of the car. And, um, and I was thinking of nothing other than the fun we were going to have. And I felt the colour drain from my life. And I felt the greyness, the blackness happen. And I knew I was heading for a fall. So I picked up the phone the next day and I document was very impulsive decision to do, but I documented over the three days a real time episode of depression. And because I've spoken out about it for so many years, I was absolutely blindsided by the response. It went viral. There was two million views on it. But, and I mean, I couldn't deal with that at first because I, I, I phoned work at Loose Women and said I wasn't well. I couldn't go in, which I didn't used to do. But now I do because I look after myself more. And it's so if they're saying to you, it's good to talk, then they have to listen. Because there's a lot of companies say, Gemma, it's good to talk. But then when you do phone and say, I'm, a, I'm ill, they don't want to know it because it's a mental illness. You know, statistics like 99% of people with a mental illness don't get a get well card if they're off work. And all I want to do is get there to be a parity between how we look at physical illness and how we look at mental illness. You know, because you've had it, Nobody would go up to someone who had cancer or a severe, severe illness and go, well, you've had it for a month now. I mean, how long is it going to go on? You look fine. Why don't you just put your trainers on and get yourself out? Go to the traffic centre. Nobody would say that, but they say it to us. And I think that's why there's an overwhelming sense of guilt, isn't there, associated with mental illness? Which is absolute and utter bollocks, because do they think that we want to have this? Do they think, you know, my autobiography in 2011 was called Pulling Myself Together. You'll know where that came from because that's what we hear. Pull yourself together, snap out of it. Much less so now, much less so now. But there are still people who think that. They may not say it because it's not politically correct to say it, but you know that they think it. And so that's why I'll take on anybody. That's why I've taken on Piers Morgan before when he accused me of wearing my depression as a designer handbag. It's like, up oh, you, mate telling people to toughen up and that there is snowflake and everything. It's disgraceful. And so, I'll, you know, I'll take on anybody who wants to say anything like that because I've always said, and it may sound selfish, but I would like everybody in the world to suffer severe depression for 15 seconds and then for it to go again and never, never, ever 
never happen to them again, just so that they can see the difference of what a clinical depression is as opposed to just feeling low. When my mum died eight years ago, I was bereft. I was grief stricken like any daughter would be when their beloved mother died. But I didn't get my depression. But I got it last year driving up to the Northeast for absolutely no reason. So the comments I got when this video went viral were from people saying, oh my God, you have just put my experience on video. And what they said was, thank you. I'm going to show my mom. I'm going to show my husband. I'm going to show my brother. Because all they ever say to me is, what do you think's brought it on? And now I can say, look, nothing's brought it on. Sometimes nothing brings it on. It's an illness. And it's, it's not sadness, is it? It's not. No. Oh, I mean, sadness is, you know, in this, there's a lot of books out there and there's a lot of things about striving for happiness. I think that in the undepressed person, that's something that is, is great. But the depressed person doesn't want to be happy. The depressed person wants to be able to be happy. And depression does exactly what it says on the tin. It depresses every single emotion. So you can't feel happy, sad. You can't feel anger. You can't feel jealousy. You can't feel grief. You can't feel anything. You feel nothing. And that is why people take their own lives. Because the thought of going through life feeling nothing, it's a life worth not worth living. And that's why it's about feeling normal. When you asked me at the beginning, do you feel fine? I said, I do. But I wake up every morning thinking, do I feel fine? Do I feel normal? Yes, I do. I don't expect to wake up and go, the hills are alive, you know, with some kind of amazing euphoric happiness going on. Happiness is a very transient phase and it's hard to feel happy in a very in, in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, because we're all so unsure of things. But to feel normal is brilliant because I can deal with whatever life throws at me then. And obviously, you're a big mental health advocate on social media. And for me as well, it's a great tool for that conversation around mental health. But do you think it can sometimes add fuel to the fire? It can sometimes be a negative space. In what way, Gemma? Do you feel like sometimes, I don't know. Oh, can Twitter be a negative space? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. Absolutely. I mean, Twitter can be a very toxic place, but it can also be a very loving, supportive place. And sometimes I'm not aware of what people look at because, for example, I did Loose Women um, yesterday as a guest for the first time in 18 years. The reason being that if you're on the panel, you can't promote your own book. But if you're a guest, you can. And obviously, they've been very much a part of my journey, Loose Women, the show, for 18 years. They've allowed me to use it as a platform to talk about mental illness. They have their own Lighten the Load campaign, which has spawned from those of us being open about our mental health issues. And and so they were very, very keen to give me this um, platform to talk yesterday. And it was wonderful. And I felt very very cared for and very loved. So on social media afterwards, if I just looked at my timeline, everything was positive. Everything was, thank you so much for speaking out. I'm going to buy your book. I've already got your book. You know, you've given us a voice. We're so grateful. It was wonderful and heartwarming, heartbreaking at times, but heartwarming. But then, which I don't normally do, but because I was doing it for the book, I did hashtag loose women. Well, there sits the troll, you know. Oh my God, 
here we go again. Denise bloody Welsh wanging on about it. Why don't you just shut the fuck up? We're all depressed. It's not just you. I mean, it made me laugh, to be honest, Gemma. It actually made me laugh because it was like, Oh my God, here they are. Here's the people who've got no profile photo, just an egg, yeah. you know? And uh, here's, here's, the, here's the no life, low life. And, um, and so I just thought, you know, you, you can find spaces on Twitter that you, that you know not to go to. But in the main, my followers on Twitter and Instagram, which are my two um, public profiles, my Facebook tends to be a bit more, you know, just for me and my pals. But Instagram, I never see, I, I don't do hashtag Denise on there. I just... Whatever I say or do on there, the timeline that I look at is always full and full of support and mostly from women, which is great because I'm a real woman's woman. This is a book for women and men, by the way. But what I mean is that if I ever post a, a bikini picture or a bathing costume picture celebrating the fact that I'm 62 and I think that we should all wear whatever we like and don't listen to misogynistic publications telling us we can't. You know, I never get any, I, I never look at the areas that, that will go, oh my God, you put me off my tea, you know, which I'm sure there's millions, but I never look at those. And, I, and, and I'm old and ugly enough now to, to know that I don't care. But what I've found, and I don't know if you've experienced this or talked to people with this, that in lockdown, it seems to have fallen into two camps, that there's been people who were terrified by the illness and terrified by the virus and terrified about their work and terrified about the global catastrophe that's happened and all of these things. And, and then there's been the other people who actually, and me a bit, found solace in lockdown, found peace in lockdown. And I spoke to some young people and they're terrified of coming out of lockdown because with the very anxious, and you said that that's what you have, they spend a lot of their time not wanting to go out, not wanting to go to work. And also people suffer from what they're calling status anxiety, which is where we live in a compare and despair world where people are trying to compare themselves to other people's lives that are much better than theirs. And they've got bigger cars and they've got better faces and they live better lives. And no, they don't. They're usually the most screwed up people in the world, but other people don't know that. So suddenly the coronavirus has happened. It's been a leveler and everybody's not working and everybody's anxious and everybody's feeling a bit uh, depressed at times and everybody's overwhelmed. So they've felt, oh my God, I'm in a safe place. So now they're scared of coming out. I mean, I don't know whether you found a little bit of that. I feel like that because I work from home anyway, but what's been different for me is I've had my partner with me and that's been quite nice. And, you know, yes. I can and spend lunchtime with him. So all of a sudden he's going to go back to work soon. So I'm terrified of that because I'm going to be on my own again. And then I'm just terrified yeah. to just go out in general, really. Uh, are you? Are you struggling with that at the minute? Is that, because of the, is that because of the virus or is that just because of your normal social anxiety? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I'm the, seeing all the crowds, like you mentioned earlier, on the beaches and, and, you know, when people aren't adhering to social distancing rules, that that makes me anxious um yeah mainly because I've got to look after my mum um she she's got cancer so um, I worry about that really and she's been shielding for for a long time now so it's not so much more terrified of myself it's that fear of passing anything on to anyone else I get you I think we also have to as well and and I've been a great advocate of this as well and some people have disagreed with me but you know, I'll always speak my truth as it is to me. I've spent a lot of time talking to doctors and some scientists because when I go on Loose Women and I, uh, and I put a point over, I'm not going to repeat something about a serious matter just because Sue from Wolverhampton on Facebook has said it. 
I'm going to make sure that it's backed up by science or, you know, um, by somebody that knows what they're talking about. And the media have played a huge role in catastrophizing everything, the mainstream media, and I've been appalled by it. And that's not putting my head in the sand and not realizing how how um, dangerous coronavirus was to vulnerable people during the peak. But when I actually got the statistics, and um, this is weeks ago now, you know, we're talking about 99.9% of people surviving coronavirus. And that is even old people, that is people with cancer, that is people on the vulnerable list, you know, that percentage of people who go onto a ventilator and die is still very, very, very tiny. And 80% of people, this is weeks ago, who get the virus will have a mild to moderate um, episode of it. But we are only hearing about the people who die. But bearing in mind, Gemma, all the way before the virus, all the way through the virus, all the way for God knows how many years, 450 people a day die of cancer. And we're not hearing about them anymore. It's like the whole world has been wiped for coronavirus. You know, you and I have got as much chance. Well, you certainly I'm in my 60s, but still I've got as much chance of dying of corona much less chance than of walking out my front door to go and see my friend this afternoon and being mown down by a lawnmower that happens to be passing. That is the statistics of it. But we don't hear about that. And yes, of course, we still have to be aware. And yes, of course, we don't want to create a second spike. But just remember that all through VE Day, all through the beaches, this is when it was a much more virulent virus. Nothing has caused an, a peak. And when we talk about the R8 rising in Germany and different outbreaks here, Yes, it has maybe. There's a slaughterhouse in Germany that's got a thousand people with coronavirus, but nowhere has had an increase in mortality. So they have had an increase in maybe in, in outbreak, but not an increase in mortality because it appears that the virus is losing its virility. None of us know about a second wave, but the fact is we may not get a vaccine. We're going to have to learn to live with it. But still, even with very vulnerable people, the chances of them dying of it, while, you know, obviously hospitals and care homes are still going to be the places where it is going to be more prevalent. Um, and obviously that's where people have to go. But we have to keep a perspective on it that the world would not be happening and coming out now if this was still a deadly, they still like to call it a deadly virus. It's no more deadly than many other things that your mum is very capable of, of getting. And that's from the top scientists. But the mainstream media will always like to keep us controlled by it being deadly, you know, and then you just have to pick it up now. And now it's like, People are going for a shit on the beach because the public toilets are closed. We're going to have a cholera outbreak and become the third world. I mean, it's like, go away. <laughs> Give me a fucking break. You know, I'm done with it. Yeah, I feel like most... Go for a poo before you leave home and you'll be all right. Denise Welch <laughs> says, go for a poo. <laughs> so going back to your book then, I feel like you seek out a lot of answers to, to your depression throughout the book. Do you still wonder if you hadn't had a baby that you would experience depression or is that so? Yeah, good, yeah. very good question. Very good question. Yes, I do wonder it. I, I, I wonder it a lot. And do you know, I think I wouldn't have. Do I regret having a baby? Oh my God, no, never. I feel sadness that I lost so much. I lost a lot of my life with Matty growing up because of it, because I was so poorly and then because I was self-medicating. And, you know, um, th there's issues when you have a mother who's self-medicating. 
Um, but I mean, Matty and I are good. We love each other desperately, obviously. But, they, you know, there has been issues as a result of that. Less so with Louis because he was nine when I got sober. And I wasn't a mother that, you know, went, went to the cupboard and picked up a bottle of vodka in the morning. I wasn't that type of alcoholic. But obviously it comes with issues. So, yes, I have wondered because I said to you earlier in the chat about it taking 20 years for me to access hormonal help. To me, could hormones possibly be, doctor, the reason for my depression after having a baby? No, 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 no. It's not to do with hormones. You get pregnant because you have sex with a man and that fertilizes your egg and your body creates a human being inside your tummy and you give birth to it out of your fufu and you're telling me that no hormones are involved in, in that miracle of life. Therefore, with some women, the chemical chaos after childbirth and the massive depletion of estrogen that happens with most women, 80% of women will get what we know as the baby blues, which is a fluctuating hormone imbalance. And it takes a few days for these hormones to right themselves. That is most people. In some women, like me, the chemical and hormonal chaos is so great, it causes postnatal depression. It can cause mild depression, moderate depression, severe depression, and puerperal psychosis. Puerperal psychosis is where you've had a baby, you have been completely healthy for all of your life, mentally. You have a baby and you get psychosis, where you put your baby in a microwave, you put crosses and you, you, you think your child is the devil. You kill yourself as a result of it. People kill their children as a result of it. You're telling me that that's got nothing to do with the hormone imbalance or the chemical imbalance in your system. Of course it has. But it took me 20 years, Gemma. And that's because I realized that, that some, well, a gynecologist, John Studd, Professor Studd, that I eventually saw, said to me, well, why do you think they, you, you've just paid me 500 pounds to come and see me. They don't want you to pay me it. They want you to pay them it. And it made me very upset that there was a lot of finances involved in this. I have had wonderful care from people, not at the beginning that I talked about, but my GPs and the GPs I have now are wonderful. And they actually look to me as well. They'll say to me, my doctor will say, well, what do you think? Do you think we should go ahead with this medication or do you think you need a change? Do you think this is it? Da, 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 da. How does your drinking affect you? You know, they've learned from me and good doctors will learn from their patient. And, um, you know, I feel sorry for doctors because they, they don't have the time often to spend with the patients that they would like to spend with, which is why there's so much mental illness amongst doctors, mm. you know, because they themselves are suffering. So, yeah, so I do, you know, I, I would advise anybody who is suffering to um, access hormonal treatment. However, there is also psychological triggers that have then happened as a result of my system being prone to depression. But the origin was definitely hormonal for me. Your firstborn then is Matt Healy. And yeah. those who might not know is the lead singer of 1975, whom I love, just to add in there. Um, <laughs> and I just wanted to ask you, really, I was quite interested in this, um, being a parent to such an incredible artist, one who has spent so long in the public eye. Did yeah. you sort of have any reservations about him choosing that career in the spotlight? And has it sort of in any way impacted on your on your mental health? Because I know he's written a few songs about you, hasn't he, as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I didn't have any reservations about him going into the industry. My kids, both my kids didn't exactly um, reach the top of the tree academically at school because they were bone idle. 
okay? Matthew and Louis are both hugely intelligent people. If you know my son, Gemma, which you clearly do, you know he uses words that most people haven't even understood, <laughs> you know? He, um, he, he is a great global voice and he uses his voice very passionately for causes that he believes in and gets himself into bother for, for a lot of the time for doing it. But I'm very proud of him for that. Um, so I never worried about him going into mu- the music industry. Um, it, it, his music is his passion. It's all he's been passionate about. And we were, um, we, we were happy to support him in that, in, in that quest. And I did worry about the fact that it was a really competitive business like mine. And I worried about what he was going to do if it didn't happen. But then, of course, it did. Has it affected my mental health? Sometimes it has, because it's almost like I've had two only children because there's 12 years between them. So um, they're very close. But, you know, Louis was only a toddler when Matthew went off. So when Matt was about 22 is when Chocolate happened, the song Chocolate and the world changed. So I'd had my son and most of the band members at my house, which is where the band started. And then they just went off and they sort of they went off to a parallel universe. And and I struggled because I didn't see him and because I didn't know the life he was living and because he was away from me. When Matthew's working, we're on different time zones all the time. So, yeah. And and, and it made me a little bit clingy at times, really. Um, And it was it was it was it was tough. It was tough on me. And also, Matthew's I don't talk about Matt. You know, I leave Matthew to talk about his own issues but you know it's been well documented that Matthew's had his own struggles and I've been there for him and luckily he's through those now and he's he's you know he's doing amazingly well and similarly you know Louis is Louis is a young actor a very very talented young actor as well and I've never had any reservations about him going into the industry I worry now because our industry is shot to pieces and I can't bear the thought of what's happening to our theatres and you know it really really causes me a lot of um, sadness every single day but I still wouldn't change it for him. It's still a career path that he's chosen and I'll, and I'll support him as much as he can. I mean, when I say support him, they always, you know, they don't want me to post anything about them. Mum, stop posting about us. <laughs> Mum, don't be singing to my songs. Mum, stop it. You know, <laughs> um, cringe, you know. And if, if I'll post something on Instagram, Louis will go, oh my God, that's tragic. You know, so <laughs> typical reaction of my children. When, when it, they, are, are they proud of me? Yeah, apart from when I'm not posting tragic things on Instagram, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that's, such, that's such a 2020 phrase oh that's isn't tragic it, isn't it oh my god that's so tragic oh mum why did you post that it's tragic the other things that I've picked up on as well that I identified with the book there's a lot of sometimes irrational thoughts of course isn't there and at the moment my partner's trying to fully understand my illness so I could relate to the times where your irrational thoughts were perhaps causing well, new I think arguments he, and... is it a he or is she your partner a he he's, yeah he's called Mark a yeah he. I think that Mark should read the book and I think he I think he should certainly read the section at the end where my family and friends who have lived with me with depression talk about it because that's why I included that chapter because I think that the the people who live with the depressed person or the anxious person, Gemma, are a very underrepresented bunch of people. And I think they need a voice as well. And I hope that my book is trying to be a voice for them as well. That was such a lovely touch, those those um, entries at the end. Was that something that you were always planning to do? And did you? No, it wasn't. It wasn't, to be honest. It wasn't. It was just something that Lincoln said to me. And I thought, oh my God, that's so amazing what you've just said. And, and then I went, do you know something? I'm always talking about how the partners of... But what about the sisters of? What about the kids of? Wouldn't it be lovely for people to read that? 
And so I said to the publishers, and at that point we'd written, there was too many words and they said, I don't think we can fit it in. And I said, right, well, it's really important to me. So I had to get rid of some other little bits, just bits that were just, you know, not, not that important so that I could have that chapter in. And I'm so glad that I did because I think it's an important chapter that they have a voice. It's the very emotional, especially your dad's poem. How did you feel when you were reading all well, of them? Do you know something, my dad's poem, I was just going to say before that as well, tell Mark that my book is on audio as well, narrated by me. So if he doesn't want to sit down and read it, he can just, you know, download it and have it on in the car or whatever. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, unless he thinks he'd rather do anything than listen to me wanging on for two hours. But no, anyway, <laughs> um, but uh, my dad, yeah, it was about, it was in September when, when I had this episode and my dad had been due to come down to stay. Lincoln said, your dad's on his way down. And I'd gone, oh God, oh God. Only because I, when my dad comes down, I want to be here for my dad, you know? And I knew that it upsets my dad so much to see me poorly, but he had all, he was already on his way down. I can't remember the circumstances. Um, he, he has a dentist here. Maybe it was to do with that. I can't remember Gemma, but I just know that he was on his way down. And so um, Lincoln said, don't worry, don't worry. You stay in bed. I've told your dad you're not very well. And of course, dad came up to see me and, you know, they totally understand what I'm going through, but it doesn't make it any easier for them because they love me so much. But he came up and he sat on the bed and he said, look, I'm just coming up to see if you're okay." And I said, yeah, I'm okay, dad. I said, it'll go, you know, and that's what, again, the reassurance is the unwelcome visitor will always leave no matter how horrible his visit is. He'll always leave. And again, that's the message I'm trying to get over. And so he said to me, I was going through some stuff trying to clear out some dad's he's not a hoarder but he still has filing things like nothing's modern online or anything and I quite like that kind of filing system <laughs> so he'd been he'd been going through some files and he said look at this I found he said it's a poem I wrote to you 20 years ago and I said a poem when did you when did you become Wilfred Owen and um, <laughs> and he said I can't remember writing it and he showed me it and I read it and I just said, oh, dad, I just, you know, I remember I didn't cry because I can't really, sometimes I can't cry when I'm depressed because it robs me of that. And I remember picking it up the next day and just sobbing my heart out at the fact that I think I felt sorry for myself and for my family that I've lived with this for so long. When I read his poem that was written 20 years ago, you know, and, um, it made me sad, but it was lovely. And so I said to the publishers, you know, I'd really like to include my, my dad's poem in there. And, um, and so they did. So that's really special for me, really special, especially because my mum's not here as well. And, you know, I know people say you shouldn't have regrets. I have lots of regrets. But, but one of the regrets is that I didn't kind of turn my life around enough for my mum to see this new phase of my life without alcohol and everything because she worried so much about me, you know. But I take solace in the fact that she lived for three weeks after I'd given up drinking. So hopefully, you know, she, she knew that I, that I was on the, I was on the road to recovery. Definitely. And alcohol plays a big part in this book, doesn't it? And in your life. Yeah. Alcohol ruined my life and drugs for some time. Um, it, but the depressed person and the anxious person will 
understand that sometimes you will do anything to stop the pain. And even people who don't have what is perceived as a drink problem have understood in lockdown what it feels to drink to blot things out. Um, And we're seeing a bit of a tsunami of mental health issues and indeed alcohol issues coming out of this because people who would have said that they were just social drinkers have drunk because they've been frightened, anxious. And of course, those people will all know that while it's great to take the edge off the night before, the next morning you wake up with anxiety, 10 times more anxious. So I, my depression was so, so, so bad 22 years ago, maybe that I started to drink to try to get through. And then I started to take uppers to try and lift, um, lift the depression, which they did, which they did for 40 minutes. But then you have to have another one and then you have to have another drink. And then, and then I was so frightened of the come down that I'd keep on drinking and it basically obliterated my life for 15 years and, and that of my family for many years. And, and it wasn't until I met Lincoln and we got sober together that this new phase of my life started and giving up alcohol does not, I must, um, uh, say does not cure depression, but it stops compounding the depression. And that is the difference that episodes that last maybe for three days may have lasted for three weeks before. So it stops. I'm not saying I won't have a three week episode again. I never rule out anything with this illness, but if I do, I'll survive it. And that's what my book's about. And I feel like in the book, it you start off with, you know, coming to terms with, with, with the illness. And do you think Firstly, you have to accept it. And then secondly, you have to realize it just doesn't disappear. Yeah, I think accepting it was a massive turning point in my life, a massive turning point, because prior to that, every time I'd get ill and then got better, because maybe I'd been on a new medication or, you know, something else, I'd go, I think this is it. Honestly, mum, I think this is it. And she'd say, well, just enjoy the time that you're well, but, you know, don't put all your eggs in the basket. Just enjoy the time. And I'd go, oh, for God's sake, you know, people do get well from this. Then, of course, it would come back and then I would be I I would be devastated. And once I learned to accept that some people live with cancer quite successfully for many years, like my mum did, some people are diabetic and they know that without their insulin, things will take a very serious turn. I know that I this is my this is something I live with. But what I will do is I will enjoy to the full every time I am between episodes and I will help other people when I can in between those episodes. And if this book is my legacy, then I'm proud of it. And so be it. Thank you so much for for taking the time and speaking to me. Thank you. Thank you. And especially because I know that you go through it as well. So I'm so pleased that you um, got something from the book. I hope Mark does. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Lots of love.